Morning, church. Morning, church. Happy Father's Day to all the dads here. Special day. It is a delight to be a father, and I hope that the dads among us feel deeply loved and appreciated this morning. One of my best memories with my father was a trip which my brother and I took with dad to Yellowstone in 1993. The trip was in in celebration of dad's 55th birthday. I was only 25 years old at the time. I'm the guy on the left. This is outside Yellowstone at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, 30 years later this summer. So it was 30 years ago this summer in August, to be exact. Now, 30 years later, I'm turning 55. I'll turn 55 this fall. And I find myself wondering how Dad survived some of what must have felt like forced marches at times for him. Um, My dad was, as we went on hikes is what I'm saying, in and around Yellowstone, my dad was a terrific athlete. I have uh, a memory as a child of him doing a back handspring in the living room. So I was probably nine, which put him at about 39, 40 years old. So I want to ask for a show of hands who could do a back handspring at 40. Uh, But he was a good athlete, uh, a strong guy. Problem was, uh, he also was a very heavy drinker. And he worked really hard in his adult life to get his three-pack-a-day habit of smoking down to two packs a day. And so when we were hiking at 7,000 feet elevation, Jenny Lake here in Yellowstone, I think it was probably taxing for him in some special ways. And if you've heard me preach much at all, you know that my relationship with my father was a mixed bag at best. I certainly have good memories. I have some very great memories with dad. Yellowstone, him doing back handsprings in the living room. But I also have some really difficult memories with my father. Some that left me with deep disappointment and discouragement. And as we pause this weekend to celebrate fathers, and rightly so, we have a beautiful passage of Scripture. One that reminds us of God's love for us. Not simply a momentary love, but a longitudinal love, a long-standing love, a love that is from the foundations of the world. Christ was sent. Christ was slain. Family was God's idea. Did you know that? This should comfort us to a great degree. Fathers, mothers, marriage, kids. We didn't think this up. This was God's idea. And of course, no parent is perfect. And it can be easy to confuse the experience we have with our parents, if we're not careful, with the experience God longs for us to have with him. In fact, over the last 40 years, the lion's share of my spiritual journey has been disentangling my experience with my earthly father with the experience my heavenly father wants me to have with him. Particularly as we consider, or I consider, um, the, the broken patterns of communication, which are fairly common in families, with the perfect communication God has with us in Christ. Are you following me? There's a disentanglement that's needed because no family 
is perfect. And our Heavenly Father wants us to know His love, His care for us, His plans to, to strengthen us and draw us in close to Him. And that's clear. And He wants us to know that He's going to repair the losses that we've suffered in this life because of our own sin or the sin that's from our families of origin. So follow along as I read Isaiah 61. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. It is a powerful passage coming about 750 years before the birth of Christ. In fact, Christ picks up on this passage as he um, begins his earthly ministry. It's this passage out of Isaiah that he uses to note what God is doing for us through faith in him. Isaiah 61, I'm going to begin in verse 1. There we read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, as an aside, those who were poor in the ancient world were thought to be deserving of their poverty. That this was a part of their sin, the consequence of sin or the lack of God's blessing for righteousness in their life. Yet we see here, God has good news for the impoverished. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. How are your hearts this morning? Does your heart need healing? That's what it means to bind up, to care for. I dare say we all need our hearts cared for this morning. To proclaim freedom for the captives. Do you feel free? I like to say, are you standing up straight? Or is sinful entanglement something that has you by the ankles? Around the waist? <laughs> right? Around the shoulders? Are you hunched over under the burden of sin? And release, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. Are you seeing clearly? Or does confusion reign in your life? Do you have the light of life? Who is Christ? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is that how we perceive God moving towards us? As someone who has favor, to provide for us, to, provide, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit's of despair or hopelessness. I love that, that closing portion of verse 3. Beauty instead of ashes. If you've destroyed your life in sinful living, the Lord wants to make something beautiful out of it. Oil of joy instead of mourning. If you're grieved 
and overwhelmed by the destruction that sin's brought in your life, he wants to provide for you joy, a garment of praise. He wants to put new clothes on you, clothes that are aimed at a party, a garment of praise. We'll pause there for a minute. One of the questions that is rightly asked when reading prophecy is, for whom is the prophet speaking? In this instance, we would rightly ask whether the prophet is claiming that the Spirit of the Lord is on him in his original context, or whether he is speaking on behalf of another person. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, in fact, I'd already mentioned you know that Jesus made it clear that the prophet was not, in fact, talking about himself when he said the Spirit of the Lord's on me. He was foretelling, he was prophesying about Jesus and how the Spirit of the Lord would be on Jesus. We learn this in the, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, when he is first baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, he comes out of the the waters of baptism, he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan, and then he comes out of the wilderness and begins preaching. He begins preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is come, is near. And as he's preaching, he makes his way around Galilee and then heads for his hometown of Nazareth. And he's going back to Nazareth, his ministry is at the start, and it doesn't go well. He's not received. He's actually rejected by his hometown folks. Jesus went to the synagogue, so as he makes his way into Nazareth on that Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue where the gathering of God's people are. And this was, Luke points out in Luke chapter 4, this was his habit to go to synagogue. And it was probably the habit of everybody in that little village of Nazareth. On the Sabbath day, go to the synagogue. And we're told that when when he stood up to take his turn in reading scripture, they handed him the Isaiah scroll. They didn't have it bound in a book like this. They had it in a scroll, which had to be unrolled, and they handed it to him. And so by God's sovereignty, or perhaps he requested it, I hadn't thought about that, but he took his turn reading, and they handed him the Isaiah scroll. And Luke says he unrolled it, looking for a particular section of the scroll. And, and Isaiah is not a short book. It's on the screen from Luke 4. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He actually goes on, presumably, to expound on this passage in his role in it. He expounds to the point that they reject him. They don't like what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. So what does it mean today this passage from Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your hearing? What's that mean? And the folks in Nazareth run him out of town. Because he's claiming that the year of the Lord's favor is now inaugurated. It has come. The time is beginning. Something new is happening through me. 
He meant that all the good things that God had promised in Isaiah 61 were now coming to pass. The poor, the brokenhearted, those held captive, those in darkness, those who are mourning and grieving and whose lives are in ashes because of the losses brought by sin. Those folks would now be comforted, provided for, God's going to make something beautiful in those folks' lives. There'll be joy and praise if they acknowledge me. That's what he was saying. I'm the one anointed by God. Right? Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's chosen, that's what it means, anointed. He's chosen me. For this ministry. Ultimately, when Christ said it's fulfilled today, what he's saying is that those who are trusting in his sinless life, his moral perfection, rather than trusting in themselves, those who are trusting in his sacrificial death, rather than their own sacrifices, our flesh loves it. When we're called to sacrifice, but that's not the gospel. Now, I should say that's not how salvation is experienced. No, we're saved through his moral perfection, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. That's the year of the Lord's favor. That's the favor that God wants to pour out on our lives. And it wasn't that God's people had not experienced favor in times past. They certainly had. God's favor had certainly been experienced by God's people in that they were recipients of the Mosaic law. That was a part of God's favor for sure. His revelation of his character as he gives them his moral law. The psalmist, if you open to the book of Psalms, the Psalms begin with the declaration, blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, happy or favored are those who put their delight, who find delight in the law of the Lord. But even in that declaration, we see there's a conditionality. The law was performative. There's certainly God's favor for God's people before Christ came. It was found in the law, but as God's people obeyed the law. That's when they found forgiveness, if they kept the sacrificial system. If they performed the law as prescribed. Then they could draw near to God. Then they'd experience his favor. But Jesus is saying something different, categorically different, has now come, is now being inaugurated. Something new, something unique in redemptive history. In fact, a new covenant written in Christ's blood, not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, in which the favor of God is poured out apart from anything that we do because of all that he's done. You see, the favor of God experienced under the Mosaic law was performative. It was based upon the people's obedience. It was conditional. If you do this, then these blessings. If you do this, then these curses. So don't, don't disobey. God's comfort and care and healing and freedom were provided if God's law was kept. 
if the people obeyed. In fact, in Isaiah 61, this good news, this good news must have been, well, it must have been seen for what it was, tremendous news. Because the original audience was receiving this as they're in Babylonian captivity. They were in captivity because they had failed to keep the law. They had reaped the consequences of their sin, which meant the destruction of the capital city, the burning of the, the temple there in Jerusalem, the deportation of the citizens of Judah and of Israel, and so that they're off in captivity, they're outside the promised land. So as they hear, hey, a new day is coming, the year of the Lord's favor, because a chosen one, an anointed one, a Messiah is coming. That must have been tremendous news, truly good news, not just okay news, so-so news. Sometimes I feel like the church could do a better job present, presenting the good news. Sometimes we present it as, well, it's, it's okay news. It's so-so news. Folks, I'm praying the grace of God washes over us this morning, and we see this is really good news. That there's a new day. There's a time of favor in which we live in where God is saving us apart from anything we do through faith in all that Christ, the anointed one, has done. And if the Israelites at that time knew their Bibles well, they would have recognized that the year of the Lord's favor was a particular year. It was an historic year that they were called to observe. This would have rang bells and, and set off whistles for those who understood this year of favor. It was known as the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year was a special Sabbath year of rest it was to occur every 50th year. It was actually started when the year, the 50th year came, there were to be trumpets sound and blow the trumpets in Zion in this year of rest. According to the Mosaic law, a Sabbath day of rest was to be observed once every week. We're pretty familiar with that. A Sabbath day of rest. So after, uh, after six days, one day off of rest. It was a day dedicated to, to recognizing that we don't provide for ourselves, but that God provides for us. It was a day of honoring God as our provider and the creator sustainer of all people and creation as a whole. We're familiar with a Sabbath day of rest. Lesser known was the prescription to take an entire year off. After six years of labor, the seventh year was to be a full year of rest. Are you familiar with this Sabbath rest? A sabbatical year of 12 months? But we're not done. After seven cycles of seven, that would be 49 years, there was an additional year of rest, the year of Jubilee, in the 50th year. It was a special year of acknowledging God's trust, uh, God's provision, uh, demonstrating your trust in God, honoring God as the provider. Now, the Jubilee year was 
not simply a year of acknowledging God in his provision, but it was, it's a fascinating study. You can read about it later today in Leviticus 25. In the 50th year, all debts were to be canceled. Let me let that sink in for a minute. All debts. Are you doing the math in your head? <laughs> I am. Three kids in and out of college, right? All debts to be canceled. All slaves set free in that 50th year. All prisoners released in this, in this jubilee year. Can you imagine what a celebration that would be? The jubilee year was to be a giant socioeconomic reset where the playing field is leveled. In fact, if you had sold land in order, maybe there's a crisis in your life and you sell, sold land, all land was to revert back to their original owners. Because when they came into the promised land, the land was divvied up by tribe and then by family. And no tribe was ever to actually lose its land in perpetuity. No, in the 50th year, all land was to go back to its original family ownership. Can you imagine that type of socioeconomic reset when all debts canceled, slaves set free, prisoners pardoned, land returned to its owners? Again, you can read all about the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25. One of the most radical elements, and, and I'm guessing one of the reasons there is no record that the Jubilee year was ever observed, was because it was a year of complete rest. I have a good sense of how tired we are as suburbanites. Uh, this morning, I'm running fairly low energy-wise, felt super flat in first service. But can you imagine an entire year of no work? And if you're doing the math, it, the 50th year comes on the heels of the 49th year, which was a sabbatical as well. So after six years of work, the seventh year the land was to rest. No small matter in an agrarian community. Because if you don't work and you're a farmer, what do you eat? And then a 50th year, a second year, in that 49-year cycle, a second year of no work, where you're, exp you're expressing complete and utter trust in God as your provider. You're throwing yourself on independence upon him. Folks, that's the picture of what salvation looks like. We're throwing ourselves in utter dependence on his care for us through Jesus Christ. That's the year of the Lord's favor. That's the nature of the jubilee that's been provided to us. Our debts have been canceled. We're to be set free from the sin that entangles. Can you imagine what this type of jubilee experience would be like today? Maybe you're wondering whether it's even possible for people in the 21st century to have this type of experience. Could our loved ones really experience this? Our kids and grandkids? Maybe 
like my family of origin, you carry significant baggage from your parents and your grandparents and the seeds of sin that they sowed. And you're wondering, gosh, could, could there really be a, a transformative, freeing for me and my family members? I want to encourage us to watch together this little video of one who has a great story of being set free by Christ. This is truly good news. Let's watch this together.
Jason's uh, in service each week, um, or most weeks. He's usually in second service. He's with us this morning. Jason, thank you for sharing your story. It can be hard to share your story, can't it? So if you see him around, give him some love. Don't, don't be timid. Give him some love. Tell him thanks for sharing his story with us. And um, I, I should also mention Jason's going to join us on the podcast tomorrow. He uh, is going to be open to answering some questions. So if you have questions, you can send them to the number on the screen. Jen, do we have that number? Number on the screen. This is also in the bulletin each week. And if you have questions about Isaiah 61 or the role of Christ in redemptive history or the Mosaic Law, or if you have questions for Jason, text him in. He, uh, he'll be open to answering those questions. So, Oh, and if the podcast is new for you, go to wherever you get your podcasts and uh, search Glen Ellen Bible Church and the Next Level Podcast will pop up. You can listen in. Perhaps you're here this morning and you'd like a Jubilee experience. Maybe a... Uh, a freedom and a joy and a garment of praise are something that um, for the first time are making sense to you. Maybe the news of who Jesus is is clicking in a way it's not clicked before. Maybe you're seeing that it's not just okay news or so-so news, that it's genuinely good news. Then I want to encourage you this morning to ask God for the Jubilee experience. The forgiveness, the cancellation of death that we owe God because of our sin, the freedom from entanglement of sin and the curse of sin. Uh, in a minute, we'll read a verse about everlasting joy that's ours in Christ. You can do that by praying a fairly simple prayer, which I wrote. Uh, there's nothing magic about this prayer. In fact, in first service, I had misspelled a word in the prayer, so we, they corrected it. We know it's, it's, there's nothing magic about the prayer. In fact, you could say something as simple, right where you're seated, to God, like, God, I need the Jubilee. <laughs> I need the year of your favor. I need what you've inaugurated in Christ. And Scripture tells us that, that we're saved. Or you could say, Heavenly Father, I want your favor offered to me through faith in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Please cancel my debt, forgive my sin, restore my brokenness, comfort me in the losses and the grief that I've absorbed because of sin. I mentioned that my relationship with my father was difficult. He's passed away. I have many memories that, though, that left me brokenhearted. And the pain of brokenheartedness drove me in some destructive ways, ways in which led to, uh, you know, self-sabotaging, where I shoot myself in the foot, basically, uh, because of the pain that I absorbed uh, from family of origin, leaving parts of my life in ashes and needing repair. It's a repair that God has done. And I want to talk about that repair, because Isaiah gets into it, and it's, it's a part of the favor of God. It's not simply that we're saved for an eternal experience, that's true, but we're also saved and God begins a work of repair in our temporal experience. Am I perfect? No. Is Jason perfect? No. But for those who pray and ask God for the year of the Lord's 
Ask him for his favor, the jubilee experience. God begins to do this rebuilding in our lives. In verse 3, we read, we receive a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And that's, that's powerful. We need that. We need the beauty, the ashes to be turned to beauty, the mourning. We need joy in our lives. We can feel hopeless because of the condition of our families. And he's going to give us new clothes, welcome us into his family. The family is a part of the, the metaphor to describe our experience in salvation. The, the actual description is adoption. We're adopted into the family. And we get this new garment. It's this garment of praise from our new family, our new father. This description of the power of God's favor in our lives continues in verse 3. It's on the screen. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Those who experience the Lord's favor are going to grow into these oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Display of my splendor? No. Display of Jason's splendor? No. Display of God's splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. Now remember, this is spoken to a, a people that their capital city's been burned, uh, destroyed, their temple burned, they've been deported, the walls of Jerusalem have been uh, torn down. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And, and perhaps there's generational sin in your family that has just wreaked havoc. God is inviting us to experience a repair. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be given a ministry. He goes on to say, you'll be named ministers of God. What that actually means is in a 21st century lingo, you'll go from purposeless and living for self, as Beckett talked about in the Thy Will Be Done song, you'll go from purposelessness to purposefulness. You'll be given a ministry. In fact, we know in Corinthians, you're given gifts by the Holy Spirit. It's a part of the favor of God poured out on our lives. You'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you'll boast. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. You know the difference between shame and guilt? Guilt is the conviction that I've fallen short of the character of God in some way, whether action or attitude. I'm guilty before the Lord of sin. Shame says I'm unlovable. Shame says I'm irredeemable. And when we receive 
Christ, we receive his righteousness, and we move from guilty to pardoned, and then he deals with our shame. Instead of your shame, instead of thinking you're unlovable, you're going to actually receive a double portion of inheritance. You're going to see that you are loved and abundantly loved, and, and my love is going to be poured out on you. And this lavish inheritance, perhaps you remember the New Testament story of the prodigal son who forsakes his father in sinful living, goes to a distant land, comes to his senses, sees his sin, returns home, and is embraced by his earthly father. It's a picture of the heavenly father's embrace of us. And he puts a ring on his finger, right, that's authority, and puts a robe on his back that's welcoming him into the family, and puts sandals on his feet, and kills the fatted calf, and throws this huge party, He's, right? That's our experience in this year of the Lord's favor. Shame is done away with, so that when we feel unlovable, when we have those tapes play, we should go to Isaiah 61, verse 7. Shame is not for me because of who Christ is and what he's done. I don't have to live with the haunting voice that I'm unlovable, irredeemable. That's not true for those who are in Christ. Amen? Shame is no small matter in this culture. So let's make special note that the experience of favor results in our growth. It doesn't cause, I'm sorry, we don't experience favor because we're growing. No, receiving God's favor results in growth, into oaks of righteousness. The pulpit ministry of Glowing Bible Church is not saying, grow so you're loved. That's not what it's saying. It's saying we're so loved by God that he's fueling our growth. Very different. Subtle but profound importance. It's for his splendor. We grow as a result of receiving his favor and we begin showing that favor to others. We find our role in repairing the ruins, not simply in our own lives, but in the lives of others and in the community. He makes even our enemies and the strangers, he brings them in. Verse 5 is, a, is an interesting verse. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Remember, it was strangers and foreigners that had deported them and had overrun their cities and their nation and deported them. And, and God's saying the repair will be so profound that even strangers and foreigners will be welcomed in. He'll make even your enemies at peace with you. The favor of the Lord is all-encompassing. I have a little laundry list of things I've noted. It's on the screen when we receive his favor, we begin to display his splendor. When we receive his favor, we're motivated, we're moved to rebuild and restore what has been ruined in our lives. We live differently, not in order to merit, but, re but instead to reflect. We follow Christ not in order to merit his love, but in order to reflect what we've received. 
We're not in peril of losing it. He's saving us. We're not saving ourselves. <laughs> What's actually at stake is we're going to miss out, right, on fully enjoying the favor that's been lavished on us. That's the invitation to follow, is to fully experience in the lavish love of God. He'll teach us to love and welcome our enemies. We'll find our place as priests and ministers. We'll throw off shame and disgrace, and everlasting joy is ours. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us in the gospel, an unending grace. Minister, open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to receive it. Thank you that you move us by your grace to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.